Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. probably wondering why we're returning to the start of the letter to the Ephesians again. Haven't we just finished uh, Ephesians? Uh, and the reason we're coming back to the start of Ephesians is because I'm going to preach again a sermon that I preached at the, at the end of January on election and predestination. And the reason I'm going to preach it again is because the, the Sunday evening when I came to preach it, that was the Omicron Trinity tidal wave. And I think there were maybe about 15 of us in the building and Omicron even reached the sound desk and the computer. The sermon wasn't recorded. Uh, so all the people who really, really wanted to know, what does Trinity believe about election and predestination? Uh, you were all thwarted. Uh, many of us were ill and unwell. And it was the kind of sermon where many people said to me, oh, I think I need to hear that again, which is always a little bit of a double-edged uh, comment, isn't it, uh, after a sermon. So I thought, that's what we'll do this morning. We'll come back to this, this beautiful doctrine of God's love for us. What I've I've called here everlasting love, uh, and so we'll look at this together again. Let me read God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, um, although it says uh, we've printed to verse 10, I'll read to, to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Well, just say those words, election, predestination, and already the question marks are forming in your minds, aren't they? All sorts of things come to us. As soon as you hear those words, what about what about free will? If God chooses or predestines, God, does God choose who is saved and who isn't? 
And many of us know that election and predestination have been so controversial down through the centuries that to identify what you believe about those things, many people can tell what church you go to because of what you believe about those things. For those of us this morning who just aren't interested in all the history, all the controversy, you, you just want to know what the Bible teaches about election and predestination. Everything I'm going to say to us this morning comes from these verses in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to say anything to you that I'm not going to try and show you as being here in front of you in your open Bible. And we're going to look at a couple of other passages as well this morning. For those of you who want a little bit more than that, let me say that the teaching of Ephesians chapter 1 is why a church like Trinity takes our place in the Protestant Reformed tradition in church history. So I, I believe the Bible teaches us to believe everything that something like the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us to believe about election. If you're interested in that, you can look it up on our website. Go to chapter 3, God's Eternal Decree. That, that, that's what I believe. That's what Trinity believes. But we believe it because we think Ephesians teaches it. And that way round is important. Ephesians teaches what the confession teaches. I want to show us four things this morning from these verses. Four things. Number one, the happiness of election. Number two, the time of election. Number three, the purpose of election. And if we're all still friends by the end, number four, the person of of election. The happiness, the time, the purpose, the, per the person. Look at verse 3 with me again. The happiness of election. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Just ask yourself as you read those two verses, is the Apostle Paul embarrassed about election? So the, the, the word election is there in verse 4, even as He chose us. That's where we get the idea of election from, that particular word. The doctrine of election is God choosing people to be saved, to belong to Jesus. But just look at the feel of those verses. Is it embarrassed? In fact, in the original language, the Greek language in which this is written, from verse 3 down to verse 14, it is one long complex sentence. One long sentence. You can almost kind of feel it, can't you, in the the, the English Standard Version translation, trying to break it up into manageable, manageable clauses. It, it's as if Paul praising God for the doctrine of election makes him so happy he cannot get his words out fast enough. John Stott cites uh, an ancient commentator who says that in these verses it is as if, it is as if we are watching an eagle take flight. Is that how you feel, thinking about election? W would you use it if you're writing to a Christian friend? When was the last time you opened an email or a, a, a tweet or a text or whatever it is to a friend overflowing in adoration to God for election? 
we're so often the opposite, aren't we? You know, we want to say to him, look, Paul, what, why? You've just shot yourself in the foot. You've lost half the room. Why, why start with something so controversial? Maybe mention it by the end of chapter 6. Nobody's still reading by the end. Just, just tuck it in. Nobody will notice. I think it was the most recent series of The Apprentice, wasn't it, on TV? Did you see that? Uh, one of the things they had to do was working in a kitchen, and they were preparing the Dover sole, the, the, the really nice fish fillets. And what, what they were doing is after a while, as the work got more and more and more difficult, and they thought the chef wasn't looking, as their work deteriorated, they would tuck the worst fillets into the bottom of the pile. So have the nice stuff at the top and tuck the worst fillets in at the bottom. And of course, when the time of testing comes, what does the experienced chef do? He goes right to the bottom. He says, I know, I know what you'll be doing. He pulls stuff out from the bottom. We want to do that with election, don't we? Just let's not fall out about this. Let's put it away. Don't, don't mention it. But look, Paul praises God for election. He, he blesses God for it. And you know, the Bible says that we can bless God for it. it, it to, to bless God is something we do to honor Him, to adore Him, to, to give to Him the very best we have. And that, that word blessed in verse 3, it describes who God actually is. He is worthy of our supreme and best affections. We can praise God for election. One of the ways God shows us the worth of His being, one of, one of the ways God shows us He has given us undeserved gifts, showering us in favor, is by choosing us, electing us. W what sort of things do you thank God for? What do you praise Him for? What, what kind of things make you overflow with thanksgiving to Him? If election is not one of them, then Paul says, well, we are not seeing God for who He really is. If saying out loud in song or in prayer, loving Heavenly Father, I bless you for choosing me in Christ Jesus, your Son, if that makes you self-conscious, then we at least have to say, don't we, that we do not understand election the way that Paul did. I want to just put that out there for us right, right at the very start. Election is a recalibrating doctrine. Where am I with what the Bible teaches on this? Election is mysterious, yes. It can be hard to understand, yes. But it is not a paralyzing doctrine. It's a praising doctrine. Me? Me, Lord? You, you chose me? No, 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 no. There, there must be some mistake. Election is, is, a, is a humbling doctrine. It's the, it's the kind of thing that should make us open our mouths in wonder, in adoration. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that we can't have questions. I'm sure you've got questions. I've got questions, things that you want to ask. But it's just a simple check on our hearts, isn't it? If I'm ever angry about the doctrine or fearful about the doctrine, then at the very least, I just need to admit that I have not yet seen it the way that Paul sees it. So the question is, why is that? What, what am I missing that he, he has got, leaving me in a different place from him? Let me show you the next one, the time of election. The time of election, and number three, the purpose of election. Go quite, go quite closely together. Here's the question. When did God choose his people? If, if you're a Christian here this morning, when did God choose you? 
Here's what some people wonder about, okay? They say, maybe you've had this sort of debate or question. Did God choose me because I chose him? Is that how election works? God looks ahead in time. He sees the world that he's going to make. He sees who will respond to him and hear the gospel, who will believe, and so he then chooses them. Or is election something different? I think verse 4, if you look at it with me, verse 4 teaches us that it's something different. Look at it with me. Even as he chose us in Christ, that's who the hymn is, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See what Paul is saying? That the time of election, when it happened was if, if we can put it like this, it was in a time when there was no time. Before the world was, before God ever laid the foundations of the earth, that is when God chose you, chose us in Christ His Son. See, the, the time of election means that God chose us before we even existed, and therefore before we had ever done anything good or bad. In other words... God chose you, friend, this morning. God chose you before you ever chose him. You see that? The, the, the fact that it happened before the world, before the world was, that is the time of election. And what that does is it does several things. It magnifies God's freedom. He acted without you, but for you. It magnifies God's glory. You, you haven't done anything that made him say, oh, look, she's done well. He looks good. No, we haven't done anything. Only God can take the credit for saving you because he chose you before you had any chance to contribute anything to him. Let, let me give you an illustration. This is hard to get our heads around, isn't it? Uh, here's an illustration about our children's birthdays. I've told you about this before, I think. What helps our children know that they're loved? What we all do is, of course, on, on their birthdays, all through the year, we tell them we love them. And on their birthdays, particularly the older they get, we, we, we tell them fully, don't we, fulsomely. We write to them in the card, your 16th birthday, we're, we're so proud of you, who, who you're becoming. Look at the things you've done. You've brought us so much joy. We love you. That's, that's one way to share your love, isn't it, with their children, for them to know that they're loved. Quite by accident in our family, we stumbled across another way of showing our children that they're loved, hel helping them to know. We, we discovered that what we were doing in this, this family tradition that we developed by accident, we discovered that we were helping them to know they were loved even before they knew their own name. So somehow, I can't remember how it happened, it, in our family, on your birthday, the four children, you now come down to your photo, the photo album of your birth in the living room, laid out with all your presents. Of course, the older they get, the more you want to just push the photo album off to the side and get, get to the presents. And then it's the presents being pushed off to the side. It's the envelopes you want, isn't it, now? But mom and dad insist, no, that the photo album, let's, let's, let's go back and remember and the photo album says to them as they, they look at themselves as a tiny child in the arms of someone whose name they did not know, the photo album says to them, we loved you before you even knew who you were. 
Look, there's the scan in the album. Before you were fully formed and fully grown, you were loved. Before you knew who anybody else was, you entered a world of love. Look at that word that's used in verse 4. It's not just choosing, is it? It, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In, In love, He predestined us. In love. We love them because we love them, because we are their mother and father. Before they had done good or bad, we just loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. No, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Do you see that? He just loved you. See, showing someone that they were loved before they even knew who you were is a very beautiful thing, isn't it? It it, it helps them realize that they're not just loved for what they do. We love you on your 18th birthday because you're, what, so good at music? You're head girl of your school. We, We love you for all the ways you make us proud. Well, look, what if we haven't ever made anyone proud? Well, what if you're sitting here this morning and littered behind you is only a trail of destruction? It's just mess. You don't have a glittering CV to point to. Your, your kids haven't turned out the way you hoped they would. You're not the person you thought you would be. Life has borne down on you, not showered you in success. What has all of that done to how God sees you? The answer, friends, is absolutely nothing if you are in Christ. You are loved. Loved before anything happened to you or by you in the world. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this morning that the doctrine of election, what what Paul is doing here is he's saying, come and sit down with me. Let's open God's photo album. Let's have a look at when I first loved you. He says, ah, yes, way back then. No, 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 Paul, but look, look what I've done. Look at the, no, no, way back then, I loved you. Now, here's why points two and three go together this morning, the, the time of election and the purpose of election. Here's the third point. Why did God choose us? Why did God choose us? The purpose of election. Verse four again. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Friends, God chose you to be holy and to be blameless before Him, not because you were holy and blameless. You see the difference? So you see, some people say, look, God looks ahead in time. He sees out there who is going to choose Him. And on that basis, He chooses them. But verse 4 is saying God didn't choose us because we were setting ourselves apart for Him by making right choices, holy choices in choosing Him. No, it's the opposite. He chose us in order to make us holy. See, look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, before the foundation of the world, in the mind of God, as He looks forward in time to the world that He will make, created and then fallen, what is it that describes the human race? What does Paul say? That race is dead. Dead and deserving of God's anger. It's what God knows will happen to all of us, to to every single human being. And then you get verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive. See, you see, that is the very essence of mercy, isn't it? The very essence of mercy is that for mercy to be mercy, it is not shown to everyone. That's what mercy is. See, it, it happens in the States, doesn't it? The, the President of the United States, as he's leaving office, he's able to grant mercy to people in prison. And the nation of the United States accepts it. It's tradition. That's okay. He grants mercy, and people imprisoned for crimes are, are released and set free. But imagine if the president, as he's leaving office, showed mercy to every single prisoner in the U.S. penitentiary system, pardoned every single crime, threw wide every single door. If he shows mercy like that, he is also at the same time destroying the nation's justice. No, for for mercy to be mercy, it needs to be given to some and not others. The the very essence of what mercy is means that it cannot be shown to all. That's how God's mercy works. You see how verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 tie God's mercy and God's love together? We should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God's mercy is loving. God's love is merciful. And and here is one of the most amazing things we need to get our heads around that God's love for us is not simply a bigger version of the way that we love each other. God's love for us is of an entirely different order. So some of us tend to think, we easily think, don't we, that God's love for us is like the way a man and a woman fall in love today. They they see something in each other. I like that. I'm attracted to that. I'm, I'm drawn towards that. And we tend to think God's love is a bigger version of that. Many, many of you will know the, the French-Canadian theologian Don Carson. Don Carson has the wonderful illustration that he says, imagine the couple walking along the beach together and uh, Jim turns to Joe and he says, do you know what, Joe? I love you. I love the greasiness of your hair. I love the, the humongous size of your nose. I love that gap between your two front teeth. No, it's not what we do, is it? It's not what, it's not what happens as the sun is setting on the beach. The, the beloved overflows in, in the things that you find attractive in the other person, the things that draw forth your love. How does God love us? Is that what God sees when He looks at us? No, we were of all people 
the least, that we are, we are people dead in, trans, in, in our trespasses and sins, dead in transgressions. You know your own heart this morning, and I know mine, and God set his love on us. Oh, when he looks at us, there's nothing in us that is like a chemical magnetic reaction of love towards us. It is God's own holy affection setting his love on us. Now, now, why God sets his love on some and not others? Friends, in truth, we do not know. There is a mystery to this. Just like I was saying to the children, God has a private life. And there are things and reasons and purposes that are known to God only. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. And the doctrine of election asks, can I live with that? Am I happy to let God be God and to have his own reasons that maybe I'm not even built to understand? I mean, when you think about it, we are actually okay with secrets with each other, aren't we? We don't expect each other to reveal everything to us. We still trust each other, even though I know you've got secrets. God is like that. You know, last weekend, I can do this now because she's not here anymore. Last weekend, I took my youngest daughter to London on the sleeper train, uh, traveling through London on the underground, getting an overground train to her grandparents down in the south coast. And to my great shame on Friday evening when we got on the train, I realized it was the first time she'd ever been on a train. And then I realized that throughout the weekend, if you imagine a a nine-year-old First time experience of train is a sleeper train. You wake up in London, you're on the underground. She did not know where she was in any way, shape, or form. To my amazement, the entire experience was utterly bewildering to her. So when we were in Hastings, right in the south coast of England, when the time came to go home, she said, are we going to get the tube? I said, no, we're going to get an overground train. Oh, and then do we get on the sleeper? No, we get a, we get a tube. And then absolutely oblivious to where she was, the map, everything was just an entire, you, you imagine it, don't you, landing in London, this, the, this whole network of trains and travel, completely overwhelming. And after a while, through the weekend, when she kept saying, what's this, where are we going next? Eventually, I was just able to say, look, just leave it with, we'll get there, don't worry, I know where I'm going, you're okay, we'll get, we'll get this one, and then we'll get that one, just leave it with me. Election asks, can we do that with God? Can we put our hand in his and let him say to us, I've got this. I've got this. I I know where I'm going. I I know which path, which route. I know the way ahead. Here's what is more important with the doctrine of election than the kind of things we often think about. Here's what is most important. God chose you to be holy. If you think because you belong to Jesus and you love the doctrine of election that you can do whatever you want, you don't understand either the Lord Jesus or election itself. You know, we, don't, we don't sit with our kids on their birthday mornings looking at their photo album and then expect them to get up and to trash the house. No, called, chosen to be holy. One, one last thing to see finally. Here's the last thing. This is really important. Number four, the person of election. The person of election. Did you notice that little phrase, in Christ? Do you see how often it comes, who has blessed us in Christ? Verse four, 
in him, verse 7, uh, end of verse 6, in the beloved, verse 7, in him, verse 9, in Christ, verse 11, in him, 12, in Christ, 13, in him, in Jesus Christ. I, I want to say to you this morning, and maybe this is the only thing you need to hear and take away for some of us, never think about election without thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians are right to say that if you try to penetrate God's private life, the, the mind of God, the, the secret things, it is like entering a maze or a labyrinth. D don't even try. Don't go there. Instead, simply look at Jesus. Simply look at Him. And here are two really helpful things to see. Notice this word predestination, verse 5. In love, He predestined us. You've got the same word again in verse 11, predestined. God doesn't just choose you. He, he predestines what will happen to you once He has chosen you. Okay, that's verses 5 and 11. You are chosen to be part of all the things that God has decided in advance will happen. That's predestined. Now, here's why this is so important in relation to the Lord Jesus. Come with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts chapter 4, we've got three passages to look at very briefly as I come to finish. Acts chapter 4, page 912 in your Bible. Jesus was a predestined man. Acts chapter 4, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, notice that? Gathering together to do something to Jesus that God's hand and plan had predestined. First Peter says, the Apostle Peter in his first letter says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus was chosen, the eternal Son, chosen by the Father, sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit to be the one who would take away the sins of the world, to be the Lamb who would bear away the sins of the world in His death. And because God predestined that for the Lord Jesus, God predestined everything in world history to lead to that one moment. Listen to these words from Klaas Schilder. He says this, God has arranged all of the preceding centuries, all of the intervolutions of time, all of the events from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 up to this moment, Acts chapter 4 verse 28. God has arranged them and molded them. God has had all events converge in such a way that there would be a place for this hour, the hour in which His Son will be bound. He allowed neither the forces above nor the forces below to ever tamper with the clock of history. He directed the battles of Caesars, the conflicts of kings. He oversaw the migrations of peoples, the world wars, the, the course of stars and sun and moon, the change of epochs and the complex movement of all things in such a way that this very hour would come and had to come. 
Jesus was a predestined man. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. And so look at Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Here is where we see what it means for, for God to predestine everything, but for us nevertheless to be responsible for what we do. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And as I read these verses, ask yourself this question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to death, it means, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? The answer, it depends, doesn't it? Did God kill Jesus? Well, in a sense, yes. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Did Herod kill Jesus? Yes. Pontius Pilate, men of Israel? Yes. And even though they were doing what God's predestination had planned all along that they would do, look how they are described in this, ser in this sermon. Wicked and lawless men. Lawless men. Friends, here, here's what this means. God is sovereign. God chooses. God selects. God elects. God sets His love on people, and He passes over people. And at the same time, humankind is responsible. We are responsible for the choices we make. It's true, isn't it, from this passage? Herod and Pontius Pilate, they, they, they can't stand there and say, oh, God made me do it. Got my one hand tied up behind my back. No, they did what they wanted to do, and they were responsible for their lawless choices. To read the Bible well, we have to stand with the feet in both of those tracks. God is sovereign we are responsible, and not diminish either of them. Both are true. God is sovereign. I am responsible. Even though I cannot tell how it is true that both of those things are true at the same time, I do not know. They say, don't they, that parallel, parallel lines meet in infinity, and for now we simply have to kneel between them. I want to finish with this. The election of the Lord Jesus helps us in another way. If we are chosen in Christ, friends, this means that there is nowhere else you need to look this morning than to the Lord Jesus. If you're thinking about election, let me put it like this. Do not look at election first. Look at Jesus first. Sometimes people get themselves really understandably wrapped up in, in knots over this come to see me and say, am I elect? Am I chosen? Friends, never ask that question without first asking, where am I with Jesus? What do I think of Jesus? Where am I with Him? 
See, God hasn't chosen you in the abstract as if all of this is just kind of happening in the mind of God and you've, you've got to try and get in there somehow, get access to it. No, God chose you in Jesus and then he sent Jesus into the world so that if you want to know where you are in the mind of God, ask where you are in Jesus. Am I in him? Do I love him? John Calvin said, whoever is not satisfied with Christ but inquires curiously about eternal predestination wishes to be saved contrary to God's purpose. Come, come with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, page 892 in your Bibles, page 892. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, the doctrine of election says to you and me today, where am I with Jesus? Am I looking at him, looking to him, running to him? Am I doing what we've done together this Sunday morning and what we will do every Sunday morning? Confessing my sins, hearing his word of forgiveness and pardon, grasping hold of him with both hands. I want to finish with this picture. Imagine with me a great house. Imagine a great house that has a banner above the door. You're walking down the road and you see the banner above the door and the banner says, whoever believes may enter. Whosoever will may come. And you, you, you see this banner, you walk past it, you walk past it. Is that, is that me? Shall I go in? Every day you see it. Whoever believes may enter. Who, whosoever will may come. And one day something makes you walk through that door. A friend shares the gospel with you and you're joining up the dots. You're, you're, should I go in? Shouldn't I? Who is the Lord Jesus? What do I make of him? One day you say, I, I believe. And you walk through that door. And then on the inside of that great house that you've entered, to your amazement, you turn around and you see on the other side of the door, above your head, inside the building, you read the words, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Who chose who? God chose you before you ever chose him. Why did he choose you? Because he loved you. Why did he love you? He loved you because he loved you. Because he freely chose to set his love on you, to, to take what was dirty and to wash it, to, to take someone who was outside and to bring them inside, to take what was broken and to make you whole. And now on the inside of this house, somebody says to you, were you forced to enter? Somebody twist your arm to come in here? 
No, we say, I, I chose it. I entered. I came gladly. And so we simply worship, don't we? We fall at his feet and adore him.